it's incredible. We don't need to get a specific breed that has the best sense of smell. We just need a dog that wants to do the work and has a blast doing it. And it's even better if that dog didn't have a place to go until they got this job. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words presented by Rosie Fund. Today, Education and Outreach Coordinator from the University of Washington, Julianne Ubigal, shares how rescue dogs are using their amazing noses to help endangered species. A link to the book Pooper Scooper on Amazon Smile is in the description. Amazon has money to give charities and wants your help identifying worthy causes. You can support Rosie Fund's mission of helping senior and harder-to-adopt dogs by choosing Rosie Fund as your charity with Amazon Smile. It costs you nothing. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We save each other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us. And they already do a lot. You can support Rosie Fund by making a donation on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or buying our note cards featuring Rosie and Peaches and our shirts on barkyours.com. Links are in the description. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Any donation amount is greatly appreciated, but here are some popular levels. $30 provides a collar and a leash for a Rosie Life Starter Kit dog, and $100 covers their entire kit. You can also support Rosie Fund by downloading, subscribing, rating, and most importantly, sharing dog words. Follow us on social media, even if you aren't looking for a dog. Watching and sharing the videos helps our channel gain exposure, bringing awareness to our cause and giving shelter dogs much-needed attention. Our free Rosie Fund YouTube channel offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and shelter dogs looking for their forever home. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions, especially if you have an idea for a topic or guest. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. Next time on Dog Words, elementary school counselor Katie Reed updates us on rescue dog Gia's first year as a therapy dog. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Joining us today from Seattle, Washington, is researcher Julianne Ubigal. Julianne, welcome to Dog Words. Hi, thanks for having me. My wife found a book that she bought me called Pooper Snooper. <laughs> and you really have to pause when you say that so you don't say scooper. It just naturally <laughs> rolls off the tongue. But Pooper Snooper, which is an illustrated book. You could say it's for children. It's a very accessible book. But it's so informative for people of all ages. I would recommend it to, to anyone and I thought, I need to learn more about this. Great. Julianne, I want you to tell us about the book, but also mm-hmm. just tell us what it is you do as a researcher. Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, thank you for appreciating the book. This was definitely a new adventure for me. I've been working with dogs and doing wildlife research and environmental research for over 15 years now. I have a background in education. I love art and I love storytelling and I've always wanted to kind of um, do more than just tell people about what I do. Jennifer Keats Curtis is an author who approached me 
about three years ago, and she had an idea for a children's book, and she wanted to talk to me about it. She wanted to know if I had interest in discussing some ideas, and and I said, yes, there's lots of great ideas. I've There's lots of good stories to tell, so we kind of discussed some of the stories of my field, and, and I talked about Samson, my coworker that I worked with for many years. He had recently passed away when she approached me, so I thought, what a great way to commemorate his memory. As I was grieving the loss of him, I, was, I, I thought it would be really incredible to tell a story that kind of will commemorate what he's done and live on forever, so to speak, in the form of a children's book. So this book, Pooper Snooper, I can't take a lot of credit for it. Jennifer Keats Curtis and the illustrator Phyllis Saroff did an incredible job telling my story and more importantly, telling Samson's story as a rescue dog who ended up in the course of his 10 years working with me, did some incredible things as a scent detection dog. As a researcher, do you have other either published works or presentations that you're doing at conferences? Like you've told stories about your work before, but I'm sure you haven't gotten to tell the story this way, or there's probably lots of stories that don't really fit into the academic format that you're able to share in this more informal, less scholarly work. Yeah, that is true. Our work is so unique and At one point, our program was quite big. We had 22 dogs in the program and nine handlers. And and so what we did got out. Quite a few journalists or authors have approached us over the years and um, written an article or inserted a, a quick story with a picture of one of our dogs. But this was the first project that I could take some real ownership in. Mm -hmm. And that was just personally exciting for me. And it was one of those things where I think it was the timing of it. When Jennifer came to me, I just knew I had to say yes, because I I was kind of struggling with how to celebrate Samson's life. And I was thinking about whether or not I'd even continue to do the work because I had only done this work with Samson. And so it was a really it was just a great opportunity. And, you know, I work for the University of Washington and my, my boss, Sam Wasser, he does incredible science and he communicates to a very different crowd of scientists. And I, having an education background, I, I want to communicate to everyone as much as possible and working with the dogs and there's, the dogs are such a great bridge where it does allow us to talk about some really cool things and a lot of people can appreciate it because of our ambassadors for the work that we do and that it, these wonderful, fun-loving rescue dogs that we work with. Yeah, very cool opportunity. Yes, they're rescue dogs. These aren't dogs that are bred for the work you do. These are dogs that you find. And this has come up so many times on Dog Words where we've talked to people who provide service animals and support animals. Yes. It's just finding the right dog, and you can go to a shelter and see what does this dog have to offer, and then put it through whatever sort of screening is appropriate for the job that it's going to do, and it doesn't have to be a purebred or a mix with a particular breed background. 
It just has to have the right temperament, personality, skill set, and that can be any number of rescue dogs you find in the shelter. What is the job that your dogs do? We used to describe our dogs as scat detection dogs because we did wildlife research primarily. And so we looked for dogs who had a lot of energy. We looked for the dogs that were not well suited for the home, didn't make great pets because they had a lot of energy. They were bred to work and just needed that outlet. The other thing that we looked for with the rescue dogs is that they have a high ball drive. So an insatiable drive to play ball. And that was our positive training tool. Mm -hmm. So we would find the dogs that had the right skill sets. uh, And that was just energy and the drive to play, play, play. And then we train them to do scat detection work and training them to detect different types of wildlife scat. The idea was developed because doing wildlife research, you want to get DNA and hormone and health information on wild animals. In many cases, in order to get information on wild animals, you have to trap the animals to take a blood sample and to get all of the information on the health of the animal. Sam Wasser determined that you can get all of that information from the scat that's left behind by that wild animal. Non-invasive. So, you're not stressing the animal. Yeah. You're going into a landscape with your dog, your scent detection dog, and you're collecting data on a species of animal We're collecting where we get that scat. So you've got a GPS tag. And then we send the the scat that we collect in the field. That goes back to our laboratory facility at the University of Washington. And that's where they do the DNA and hormone analyses. So you get tons of information about the range of the animal. And you can get pregnancy hormone information, stress hormone information. If the animal has ingested toxins, That's what we look at when we do whale research. We're looking at the southern resident killer whales and whether or not they have pollutants in their systems that is affecting their ability to successfully reproduce. As Sam Wasser says, it's a treasure trove of information, scat. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the mission for our center was first find out as much as we can about wildlife in a non-invasive manner. And the dogs were just a tool that Sam kind of thought of and we developed. And so that's where the conservation canine program kind of came into play. It was the wildlife research first. And then this idea that maybe we can use dogs to help us find the data more quickly, non-biasedly, because the dogs will be looking for whatever it is that we're looking for based on the scent of the target Mm -hmm. and their incredible sense of smell. If we train them correctly, they can differentiate between a swift fox scat and a, and a red fox scat. Wow. Looking at it, we'd have no way of telling, but they're incredible. And I, I will call it a scent intelligence. <laughs> their incredible intelligence when it comes to differentiating odors is just, it's magical. We, we don't understand it. I think at this point in my career, I have come to realize I can't understand it. And that's okay because I need trust to. It works. Them. Yeah, <laughs> it works. And it's just a huge bonus that we get to work with rescue dogs. A dog's sense of smell is incredible. It's incredible. We don't need to get a specific breed that has the best sense of smell. We just need a dog that wants to do the work and has a blast doing it. And it's even better if that dog didn't have a place to go until they got this job. 
Mm-hmm. We've had so many dogs come through the program at this point, over 50 dogs at this point, and they've all found their place and moved on and retired with someone that loves them dearly. And um, every person that's come through the program as a dog handler, seasonal or not, falls in love with their coworker. And um, it's a lifelong partnership that rarely ever ends, if at all possible. People will stay longer, stay with the job longer so they can continue to work with that dog if the dog's not ready to retire. Or we will beg the program to retire that dog early so that they can go live life with us. (laughs) Part of sort of job satisfaction is enjoying your coworkers. Yeah. And if your coworkers are like the ones I see moving around on your Zoom video, who wouldn't want to go to work every day and stay as long as it takes to find the scat? Another point I'd like to highlight, you said you look for those dogs who might not be a good fit in a home. They just have so much energy, so much drive. But then you said they retire to live their best life, often with a researcher that they've been working with because they have spent the last several years not being in a shelter, getting enrichment and socialization and learning the proper outlet for their energy, but also just aging into that more relaxed temperament. And so you help a dog that's a challenge for adoption You help them transition to being the ideal dog for someone's family. Yes, that is a very good point because, you know, at one point we did have a lot of dogs in the program. We had a lot of people and the structure of the program was as such that we could take on a lot of dogs. And at one point we kind of did see ourselves almost as much of a rescue as a research program. Yeah, you're a de facto rescue group. Yeah, over the course of years, you know, different shelters and contacts and even just people on Facebook, they they hear about what we do and they come to us when they come across a dog who they know is having a hard time finding a home, but they think it might have the skills that we're looking for. And so it's hard to turn those cases away, especially when a shelter is offering to bring a dog to you that is facing euthanization if, if, if it doesn't work out and you get the opportunity to see how far so many people are willing to go to find a place for dogs that don't have a place. And it's really cool. And so we would take in dogs because we could, and we had the the manpower to do that. And if they didn't work out, that was the next step. But we had, you know, with such a, a, a large following and then all the past handlers that's worked with us and the, the parents of past handlers and the friends of, we were able to, be a transition point for a lot of those dogs. Because once they get out of that shelter environment, like you said, in many cases, they become different dogs if given the opportunity. And, you know, walking through a shelter, it's always really hard for me when I'm looking for a new dog because I know I'm going to have to walk into shelters and it's heartbreaking because I get stressed out being in some of those environments for 10 minutes. And I can't imagine living there and, the you know, learning that you have to poop on the floor here, but before you were trained to go potty outside and then you'll be adopted from there and be expected to go back to potty, you know, like it's, yeah. Um, Yeah. 
And we have right now, we have a very tight program of just, and we don't have the kennel facility. We have kind of a tight program where we have one dog, one handler team so that the dog is always with my, so Jasper is my coworker. He's always with me. We have Aladar who's always lives and works with John. And we have Davey who lives and works with our handler, Tammy. Davey, I came across at a shelter in Kennewick, Washington, I actually went out there to assess a different dog and that dog had been adopted. So I said, great, that's always good news. Mm-hmm. They said, there's another dog here that's really intense. We don't know if that's what you're looking for. He's some kind of a Kelpie mix. He's, he's definitely a herding working dog. And he had been at the kennel for over four months but it was such a busy packed shelter that that was actually a very long time for them. And it was a pretty rural area. It was just a very busy kennel. So there were kids going in and out with leash. Like it was, it was chaos. And here there's Davey who is just, he was doing backflips. Oh yeah. A high energy working herding dog in that environment. and And over again in his kennel. He's constantly stimulated with no outlet constantly stimulated with no outlet. So I brought him out and um, walked him around and was, you know, kind of trying to assess if he had enough, like if he wanted to play ball, if that was some of its interest. And and just to several people were like, oh, they were like pointing and they were like, that's the crazy dog. And I hadn't seen that really because he was pretty quiet when I brought him out. Looking back, he, he was the crazy dog according to everyone who had been walking through the shelter earlier that day because he was the one that was just nonstop somersaulting, backflipping in his kennel. Because a kelpie can look pretty intense even when they're not doing backflips. Yes. They can look so focused. Yes, yes. And he was kind of shut down when I took him out. And I realized that. I didn't realize it until a few weeks later. I brought him home and he started to come out of his shell. and, And he is, gosh, he is such an intense dog but that's what he was bred to be he was bred to be an intense working dog and who knows his story or how he ended up in that shelter i'm just so grateful that his intensity didn't lead him to be aggressive in any way shape or form because i don't think he would have lasted a minute in that shelter he's go 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 even now like tammy is such a great person to be his human because she grew up with horses. She understands working dogs and he's a different kind of working dog than Jasper, my Labrador retriever, you know, like he is intense. And if he doesn't have something to do, he starts to get his ticks, you know, and um, for the wrong person, he can stress you out because he's just like, you've got to give him something to do all the time. But his case is just, he was going crazy being in the kennel. It was the worst situation for a dog like that that you could ever, it, it was just, it's like the, the animals at the zoo that just start these, you know, pacing behaviors and stuff. It's just so sad and unhealthy because then we expect them to be perfectly fine. Yes. <laughs> you know, like what's wrong with you? Like we bring dogs home from the shelter and we think that they're supposed to, you know, it's, it's. Oh, it breaks yeah. my heart. There's so many things about uh, dog rescue that breaks your heart when it doesn't work out, but especially when someone returns a dog to the shelter in a week. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. All of the dogs that have come through the program have been returned multiple times. Jasper 
he's such a sweet, and I think of all the dogs in the program right now, he's probably the best suited as a family pet. I do education outreach and I work in downtown Seattle. He detects PCB pollutants. So I needed a dog that actually was congenial and easygoing with people and dogs. But even he, he, he had been adopted and returned the next morning. They kept him one night and they said it was allergies, but the shelter knew that that wasn't the case. They just yes. didn't know they, what they, they were They were doing. looking for an acceptable excuse if someone's been incarcerated, like a POW, mm-hmm. you're not going to judge them. It's like, that guy seems a little on edge. <laughs> yeah. And you give him a break. Give him some time um, to adjust to this world that is bigger than three by four feet. Yes. And give them a break in that we don't know... I often wonder, like all of the dogs that I've had and I've, that I've worked with, have, they've had a different life that I don't know. And I have no idea what that previous life was like. Sometimes we do have an idea because we get information. Like Aladar is another dog in the program. He was found in Utah, tied up in the backyard with a chihuahua. He's a chocolate lab. And someone, a neighbor had been like reported So animal control went to this neighboring house, noticed Aladar and this other dog in the backyard, summer, no water, no food. They gave the owners a notice and thank goodness they did come back and no improvements had been made. So Aladar was taken from that description. He's an interesting guy. He's socially awkward. He had a really hard time trusting people. All of these things make perfect sense to me. Why would he have a normal social, like if he was tied up in a backyard for the first two years of his life? His story was that he had been somehow, and thank goodness, Search Dog Foundation out of California saw the potential because he had really good focus and, and ball drive. So, and they do, they use toy rewards. So they took him to California and he went through all the training to be a search and rescue dog. But He had been an abused dog. So when it got to the final stage of the search and rescue testing, he had passed all the tests with fine colors, finding anything hidden under the rubble, toys, whatever. But the final test was finding humans hidden under the rubble. He was timid of all strangers. Mm -hmm. And so being asked- There's some humans I would rather not find. Yeah, like, wait, there's a person under the rubble? That's scary. Like, he was like, I'm not going to pull someone's teeth. You never know who you're going to find. I, I have no idea who they are and, or why they're under there. You know, maybe, I don't Maybe we them. want to leave them there. <laughs> being or judgmental. That, you based know, on his past experience. Who knows what kind of humans he had, you know, experienced at that point. And he only, at that foundation, he worked one-on-one with two different handlers and didn't get, they, they were very, a very professional training group where there wasn't a lot of, the dogs didn't socialize much. They were, it was their handler and their dog. And so the poor guy, he was just, he wasn't sure about humans. He wasn't sure about other dogs, but he loves chihuahuas. And that's where his story about how his mate was a little chihuahua in Utah makes a lot of sense because he always wags his tail when he sees a tiny dog, but he's awkward and timid of any other dog and strangers. He was very timid of males in particular, 
So the fact that he's working with John is really cool because now he's just stuck to John like glue. Um, and his work John. is not with a team of people or in a urban area. It's out. No. Yeah. In the we wilderness and yeah. So he fit the dogs with the, the, so he does um, carnivore research. So every fall we go out and we survey, we do scat surveys looking for wolf, Cougar, coyote, scat in the Cascades. So he does that study. And he also does some work with, um, we have a, a grant with Department of Homeland Securities developing a method to train dogs to help us find illegal wildlife contraband in shipping containers. So he works with John in a kind of a safe space with that work as well. There are probably <laughs> listeners that are very jealous of Aladar. I would want to... Just be roaming the the cascades. Yeah, no. Dawn to dusk, and uh, then occasionally you get to be in the air conditioning of a customs warehouse. Yes, sniffing around and. No, what are you doing uh, tomorrow? Back to the cascades. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a good life. Probably work a trip to the beach in there once in a while. Oh yes, 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 yes. The other interesting thing is that John has other dogs. So he has brothers now, which is very cute. And they're big dogs, but he's like, he's grown up so much. And we always say that every single time we got a new dog in the program, you send them out on their first field study and you know that they're going to grow up a lot because on a lot of the field studies where you're doing wildlife detection work in remote areas, it involves just so much one-on-one time with the handler, mm-hmm. um, road trips, you're sleeping in the same tent together. It's solid time with your coworker. And if you're the human, then it's solid time with your, your canine coworker and the canine, it's solid time with your handler. And that's so much bonding happens. And so many new routines are established and so much trust is built that the dogs come back from their first project. And we always just joke with they're so grown up now. So much happens with that. Jasper had horrible separation anxiety. I think that's why he was returned to the shelter. Horrible separation anxiety. I probably would have separation anxiety too if I was abandoned in the shelter and given a, a number. Yes. But he trusts me now. So he sits by the window and looks longingly out the window for the entire time I'm away if I have to leave him. But I live with him and I work with him, so I don't really have to leave him all that often. It is a dream job for a dog because you go to work together every day. And then you come home and you rest together. And you, on your off time, you play together. I am spoiled as a human because I did a year of teaching and it felt really, it was really hard to realize I had to go to work and not bring my dog with me. Mm-hmm. It feels like I have a missing appendage when I don't have the dog right there next to me to, you know, yeah, it's a huge part of my life for sure. And I don't know if I can go back and do anything that doesn't involve dogs. So if I, I talked about teaching, I'd love to go back to teach, but I'm like, I have, have a school where I that they would be okay with having a dog. Yeah, and you need a friendly school. A dog-friendly school because I've visited enough classrooms to see how much of a difference a dog can make in the kids' experience of learning things. And I I think it's very beneficial. I know that that's not something for everyone and, you know, there's allergies and whatnot. But I think that 
so many people love dogs and it is such a beautiful um, commonality that so many people have. It's like they don't have to care about scat research or, you know, environmental sciences. But when I bump into them in the field and they have a Labrador retriever, I can talk to anyone like we run into hunters. So some people may not believe in, you know, the work that I do or think that it's important, but man, they can't deny the fact that I have a very cool Labrador retriever. And they, they like there's to, one thing you know, about you that they really like. Yes. There we go. And, and that's so if, our and common if we start, ground. Yeah. And if we start there, it's a lot easier to find those other things that oh, we like. Yes. So yes, yeah, if you start from a place of like, then you're moving to related areas and yes. dogs being that intersection for so many people just make us better, make the world better mm-hmm. is the program you do. You mentioned that at one time you had around 20 dogs and now it's smaller because of kennel space and such. Mm-hmm. Is this a program that you anticipate returning to that level or are there other researchers around the country, around the world that are expanding this work? That is a great question. And the story behind our program is that the program grew. I kind of compare it to, um, we do wolf research. I'm like, it was like a pack of wolves that just grows. And once it gets to a certain point of like the capacity, we decided to kind of divide up and have our specialties. We started to do our research as a university program, but then people would come to us with requests for us to do contract work. So other universities were doing research and they wanted to see if they could get a scent detection dog to help them do their research. And then Fish and Wildlife would come to us. What started out as our own research projects kind of grew over the years into a lot of contract work. And then the more contracts you take on and um, the more dogs you, you know, and the more handlers. And so it just kind of grew. And Heath Smith was one of the first program managers who started the work with Sam Wasser back in 1997 at a certain point, And it was just the way that things grow three years ago. He'd always really wanted to go kind of start his own project and just focus on a specific type of small contract work. Sam Wasser wanted to kind of hone in and focus on development of the methods. So I'm staying with this university and we're experimenting with how far can we kind of push this scent detection work and where can we go with it? Whereas the rest of the program kind of went off to do the the more of the contracting work. So there's positives and negatives to growing a program when you work with dogs that is large. And that is the age old debate that we've always had as a group. What's the best structure for a program like this? We have a kennel facility with the program, but we've never quite been sure if having a kennel for the working dogs is the best life for them, right? So we take them from kennels at shelters, and if we don't have someone that can be with them all the time, then they need to spend time in the kennel, and then you have to create a program that works around that, so someone who's dedicated to exercising and training the dogs who aren't in the field. And a police canine unit doesn't finish a shift and put the dog in a kennel and the officer go home. No, no, no. Yeah, the and canine so and the where, officer then mm-hmm. go home and live the life yes. you just described a yes. moment ago. And if you take on too many projects and you start to require more dogs, and then that requires a different structure, 
The method is growing in popularity. Using detection dogs for wildlife research, for environmental research, it is, and I see it every day on like social media where I've invited to be friends with more people that are starting this program. I think it's healthier as smaller programs because it allows you to have a smaller capacity and have the ability to work one-on-one with your dog team handlers. I think that's kind of where we're going to stay because taking on too much and growing the program too much, it's hard. It's also hard to make sure that you can keep every single dog handler team employed year round. So it's really hard to create a structure that works. And that is a challenge as far as from the business side of things. It's a real unique challenge to doing research work because the dogs are our research tool. Their sense of smell is the tool that allows us to do some incredible research, but they're more than a tool. They are beings Mm -hmm. that work and live with us. So you can't just pull out a tool from your tool belt and go use it when you need to. You have to create a business structure that works around the fact that these tools are our companions and we have to provide a good life for them. And if you have no contract work for them, they still need, Aladar still needs his outlet. Yes. So so his handler, John, can't just say, okay, well, then I'll walk Aladar at the end of the day when I get home from my other responsibilities. No, Aladar needs five, six, seven, eight hours a day. Yeah. And if there's no contract work for John. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Then what? He has to give up his job mm-hmm. so he can just go out on a trail with Aladar? Yes, I know. Like how you, you, yeah, how do you make that You work? can't just put them on a shelf and use them when you need to. You also can't... And if they're used to getting that amount of exercise and previously you were getting paid to exercise yes. with your dog, yes. that was part of the job. Yes. yes. Yeah, and, and when you're handling it, and this is one of the huge, the problems that we've kind of encountered. Not, it's not a problem, but it's a unique challenge, I will say. Okay, so you're looking to hire a new handler. Okay, so the handler needs to not only be ready for an exceptionally unique lifestyle and the ability to travel and, you know, you're looking for someone who's comfortable being a nomad, loves dogs, but doesn't have a dog of their own already because that, you know, let's see. Because, yeah, if I'm going to be spending the next week and a half in a tent in the mountains, who's taking care of Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh, because there are incredible people who have come to us over the years who would make incredible dog handlers, but they have dogs that they love and they have a home that they live in and a husband or wife and, you know, or kids. So then that, that kind of narrows your field of who can be hired on. So once you hire them on that, you're getting hired for a job that pays eight hours a day, but you're getting hired on to be a 24-hour companion to your working. Yeah, it's a 24-hour commitment that you're getting paid eight hours for. So how do you work around that? So there's all these logistical challenges that are like, ooh, hmm, uh, I don't know. Well, I hope that we have a listener out there who has experience with some other unusual work model that perhaps is a transferable. It's like, maybe it's not with dogs, but they go, oh, hey, here's how we solve that, that we have this weird work shift or schedule or requirements. And 
this is this out-of-the-box solution we came up with. So any yeah. listeners out there, they can contact you. There'll be a link to your department's website. That'll be in the uh, description. And of course, there'll be a link to Pooper Snooper in the description. <laughs> yeah, any interesting, good ideas for unique business models, we'll gladly accept those. <laughs> Is there another book in the works? Have you thought about a follow-up? Oh, man. Well, Casey, my little 16-year-old retiree, we're actually meeting up with someone later today to get some photos of him. She's an environmental photographer named Isabel Grock. She just released a book this year called Conservation Canines, How Dogs Work for the Environment. She visited our program probably 10 years ago and took some photos of Casey in his prime working days. She is promoting her book now and wants to revisit some of the dogs 10 years later to get some pictures to highlight the senior dogs and their retired life now. So we're going to be doing that today, which is fun. But on Zoom, he's very photogenic. So I imagine oh a professional gosh. photographer is really <laughs> going to bring out the best because he's such a handsome Oh, I boy. know. Yes. There's a little, little ward on his nose. Yes. So he's so old and cute. But no, as far as other books, I've dreamed for years about having a whole series, you know, like every dog could tell a different story. Every dog that's been through the program could tell a different story about a wildlife research project or an animal that they've helped detect. And yeah, there's, understand. there's an A story, a B story, and a C story. There's the dog yeah. story, their journey, and then there's the story of what we've learned about what we're researching. And then yes. the story just in general about environmental research and ecology. Yeah, so, yeah there's a lot of series of the book seems pretty doable. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard, actually, when talking to Jennifer about the book Pooper Super, because there's lots of cool stories. There's the dog Tucker who helped sniff out orca whale scat. There's Casey did the Pacific pocket mouse study too, but Samson also did that. So you're like, which dog should, and there's Swift, Bob, you know, every, the dogs that have helped find this salamander or this or that. There's fun little stories where dogs are helping different animals out there in the wild. There's so many cute stories that could be told. When you mentioned the inception of this research before mm -hmm. it was using dogs and you mentioned whales, mm -hmm. I just assumed that's an example of what we can learn from the scat. I didn't realize mm -hmm. dogs were being used yes. for orca research. Yes. Now, yes. There's definitely a story there. Oh, yeah. And um, there has been quite a few, if you Google whale dog, <laughs> you can find quite a bit. So Deborah Giles and her dog, Eba, who's a little pocket pit rescue dog. Giles has done research on the southern resident killer whale population for many, many years. And the southern resident killer whales they feed here in the northern waters of the Puget Sound near the San Juan Islands, and they specifically eat Chinook salmon, and their population has struggled a lot in recent years. They're having issues reproducing successfully, or there was a story that made it very big in the news a couple of years ago about the mother who actually drug her dead baby around for days after it passed away. 
There's only 70 some individuals remaining. So Giles has been dedicated to researching the health of these whales for many, many years and started working with us several years ago when we started training Tucker, the first whale dog. And the idea was if we can find health information about these killer whales without going up to them and taking a fat biopsy or darting them, there's lots of ways that we get health information from whales but they're definitely invasive. The idea was, can we use a dog to sniff out the scat of the killer whale so that we can collect floating samples of scat and not have to chase or interfere with the whales themselves? And the answer was yes. Because they eat salmon, it's a high content scat. It floats, it kind of looks like snot, smells like salmon. And if you can get there in time, you can get that sample before it sinks. And so the dog rides on a boat. The dog riding on the boat is more than I could have hoped for. I thought it was going to be on a beach. This is getting better and better. He or she rides on the bow of a small boat and sticks its nose into the wind. And our job as a handler on that study is to just watch the dog, understand the wind. And the boat driver has the responsibility of kind of being the legs for the dog, so to speak. So the boat will go drive perpendicular to the wind until the dog whips its head, meaning it caught an odor. Just like a search and rescue handler. Yes. Just reading the dog. Yes. Yes. And it's incredible what kind of information. So, and yeah, so the dog is kind of by pointing its nose, it kind of directs the boat driver and the handler helps, of course, into finding this floating sample of health information. And it's incredible. If you go out there every day on a boat with Eba and Eba helps collect multiple scats during the summer months, which is the high season for that project, then you can get information on like the amount of toxins or PCBs in the scat. You can get pregnancy hormone information from the scat, stress hormone information from the scat. And if you plot all of that data over time, you can actually see what's happening with specifically with the female whales and and the relationship that exists between females getting pregnant. If it's a year that there isn't a lot of salmon to eat, they struggle. So they have to utilize their fat to help feed and nourish itself and the growing fetus. PCB toxins are stored in the fat. So on those years where there's not a lot of salmon, the whales have to release this toxin into their system as they have to use the fat that they're storing in order to develop a new little whale. And that little whale just kind of becomes a toxic dump. And that is what's happening with many of the unsuccessful pregnancies with the whales. It's a problem that exists because of the lack of food, pollution, and then stress levels are also a thing that affects the success of the, the whale. So it's, it's kind of a sad story, but it's, but it's really also a hopeful story because mm-hmm. that's knowledge that we didn't previously have or yes. could track the way we can now, thanks to the research that you and your colleagues are doing and utilizing dogs for that. And then that knowledge is power. That's how we find solutions. Yes. So it, is. So I, it does make me sad that this population of magnificent creatures is dwindling, is suffering, but then the hope is yes. my takeaway from that. So thank you for helping supply the hope. 
Thank you. Yes. And there are stories to be told. And I think that we learn from stories. It's cool that the dogs, without saying a word, are helping us tell these really incredible stories about what's going on. And that's that's what I just am always continually encouraged by, that there's so much out there that we don't know yet. And as a researcher, that's my jam. I want to go try to find answers to questions and, and usually answers just lead you to more questions, but that's okay. You know, life is a journey and the dogs are this like superpower. And I often say that when I'm out in the field and I'm trying to see what the dogs are smelling and they are allowing me to borrow a superpower when they agree to work with me. And I think that that is such a cool thing. And I'm so grateful that these dogs that I work with really want to work with me. It's the coolest thing in the world. They're the best coworkers. They enjoy what they do. And they really, 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 really enjoy working with me. How much better can it get than that? You know, (laughs) I'm the best coworkers in the world. I have no doubt that you are inspiring listeners to try to find a way to change their work environment, that there are accountants and computer programmers and professions trying to come up with how can we get a rescue dog, and I'm sure they'll find a way. And I I think there is always something that we can learn from a rescue dog. And I say that on a personal level, but I also say that on a professional level. I think there's a lot of value, especially nowadays when we realize how incredibly important our emotional health is on the quality of life and the quality of the jobs that we do. I think that dogs have a lot that they can offer us in so many ways, companionship wise, but also scientifically. It's just, yeah. I said repeatedly on this show, we don't deserve dogs, but we're so Mm -hmm. grateful to have them. Yes. And I know you share that you've, We've explicitly stated that. So we're definitely in agreement on that. Julianne Ubegal, thank you so much for the research you do, the solutions you're helping us find, and for helping rescue dogs find not only a home, but find a purpose. Yes. That is so important. Anytime you want to come back, any updates you have for us, I would love to have you back. So just let me know. And we'll have you back on. Julianne Ubegal, thank you for being on Dog Words. Thank you so much, Philip. We really, really, really appreciate the opportunity to come talk about what we do. And I, I just, I really appreciate what you all do. And it's all about giving back. So I'm so grateful for all the programs out there that give rescue dogs a second chance. Thank you. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Julian Ubegau for joining us today. A link to the book Pooper Scooper on Amazon Smile is in the description. Amazon has money to give charities and wants your help identifying worthy causes. You can support Rosie Fund's mission of helping senior and harder-to-adopt dogs by choosing Rosie Fund as your charity with Amazon Smile. It costs you nothing. Regardless of where you buy Pooper Scooper, you'll get a beautiful and informative book. Next time on Dog Words, Katie Reed and therapy dog Gia return with an update on Gia's first year in school. A big thank you to alternative stream duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. 
Learn more about The Wires, including their concert schedule, at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Join Laurel and Sasha as they explore new music and delve into the inspiration behind each work as hosts of Sound Currents on 91.9 Classical KC. Click on the Sound Currents link in the description for more information. Go to rosyfund.org to shop and get links to our social media. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share dog words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the contact form at rosyfund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening to Dog Words, and remember, we save each other. Mm-hmm.